Están escuchando la guía de caballeros para el Festival Internacional de Cine de Toronto con su presentador, Gran Guillermo, y unos invitados muy especiales, trayendo la clase a la basura desde 1977. everyone it's been a little bit of a delay i didn't get the episodes out as quick as i'd like i often forget that when watching 10 films and reviewing 10 films that i need to record episodes and put them together for 10 films so there's been a little bit of a delay and i try to get these all out within the next week or so at least that way it's within a few weeks of tiff um today i'm going to talk about a film that um i actually saw with my mother at tiff i wanted to take my mom to see a film at the festival and our first choice was Xavier Dolan's Mommy, but that had sold out. It was a buzz film uh, in light of the fact that Dolan's Canadian and, you know, maybe our best young filmmaker. Uh, and it caught a lot of buzz at Cannes, so that sold out fast. And uh, of the few other ones that made sense scheduling-wise, my mom seemed keen to see The Keeping Room. Now, which sounds a little bit like people toys for Wendy. Um... <laughs> The Keeping Room, uh, I have to confess, I also wanted to see. I thought it sounded like a pretty intriguing premise. It's uh, directed by Daniel Barber, who had done one film prior, that being Harry Brown, which um, whenever I say out loud, I'm uh, as juvenile as I am. Uh, I always think it's, it's not the greatest name for a person to be known as Harry Brown. Um, but this film, he switches uh, continents and time zones and goes from contemporary... Uh, England, inner city England, uh, to the Civil War era American South. So I'll synopsize this film and we'll get into it here. Uh, left without men in the dying days of the American Civil War, three Southern women, two sisters and one African American slave, must fight to defend their home and themselves from two rogue, rogue soldiers who have broken off from the fast approaching Union Army. So... At first glance, I thought that sounded like a very intriguing premise to see, uh, I guess, in essence, um, uh, a siege film of sorts. To see it uh, with a female perspective is always fascinating. Uh, you know, females are always underrepresented in films in strong roles. So whenever we have the opportunity to see that, um, I'm keen to do so. Further than that, though, Barber had a you know pretty decent pedigree. I don't think Harry Brown was a great film, but it was it was good. Um, 
And the cast for this one was was intriguing. Headlining the cast is Britt Marling, um, who I think over the past three or four years has really made a name for herself. She's kind of flown under the radar, um, but she's done some quality work. I was not a fan of Another Earth. A lot of people really dug it, but it certainly wasn't her fault. I think with the material, she was you know she was fine. Um, Arbitrage uh, with Richard Gere. She had done The East, which you know had gotten some pretty good. Um, some pretty good buzz. Sound of My Voice, which I thought was a pretty interesting film she had done. So um, I think she's definitely one of the better young actresses working that not a lot of people really talk about. Um, there's a lot of other actresses that tend to work in more traditional indie fare that um, uh, get a lot more buzz. Uh, Brie Olson being one. And Brie Olson's deserving of all of the credit that she gets. Is it Brie Olson? No, I'm mixed up here. I want to say Brie Olson. Uh, but nothing's coming up when I type Brie Olson. Uh, uh, nope, that's a porn star inexplicably. Gosh, who did I mean? <laughs> Brie... Let me see if I just put Brie into Google. Or is it even... I probably misspelled Brie Olson, that's why. Brie Larson! Goodness. I meant to say Brie Larson, not Brie Olson. Wow. Showing my, showing my true colors. But Brie, Brie Larson um, would have been interesting in this film as well. Uh, but, you know, a lot of young actresses, uh, you know, Marling isn't one that falls into the conventional uh, indie um, circuit with the roles she picks. So um, it's got her. Uh, it also has Haley Steinfeld uh, as Louise, uh, Marling's younger sister. Haley Steinfeld um, was uh, a revelation of sorts in True Grit when she took over the... Um, a pretty uh, pivotal role as Maddie Ross. So, and she certainly held her own in that. Um, so she has to stay in the period. And, and uh, she uh, she's in the film, which was, of course, uh, I was keen to see. Uh, further to them, the other only other name of, of any real, not of any consequence, but any recognition was Sam Worthington. Well, Sam Worthington's an actor that I find interesting because I feel like... Um, he kind of caught lightning in a bottle and did some really high-profile stuff that made him feel really oversaturated. Um, I think, you know, he's a good-looking guy. He kind of walks that balance between being rugged and handsome uh, without being too delicate or too rugged. Uh, but a lot of he's got a lot of backlash because I do find him very bland. I don't find him... Uh, I don't find him overly bland. I don't think he sets the world on fire with his charisma, but I think he's certainly, um, you know, a competent actor. Uh to say the least, and you know, he's got a look that, uh, when used properly, I think could be uh, very effective. You know, he's been fine in the things I've seen him, and I quite liked him in Terminator Salvation, which a lot of people don't really care for, but I, I thought was was solid, certainly. Um, so those are the leads, Worthington, of course, playing the one of the Yankee soldiers, the, the principal Yankee soldier. So um, another thing that I find interesting was to see this wasn't done from the opposite perspective, that being. Uh, three Union uh, or Northern women with uh, a few uh, Confederate soldiers approaching. That seems to want to be the the um, perspective that a lot of these films would take, but it, it doesn't really take that route, which is uh, a nice little change of pace. Um, another thing that I think is, is, is important here that we don't see enough with films uh, about war uh, or the ripple effects of war is is war film through women's eyes. I mean, we uh, we see the men fighting on the the front lines, but 
the older I get, the more I'm interested in seeing war films from around the world, like uh, Come and See from Russia, or, uh, you know, uh, the Danish film Flame and Citroen, which maybe wasn't a great film, but it's fascinating to see other, other perspectives on war, and I think to see it from a female perspective in the Civil War at a time when a lot of things were changing, uh, culturally and society, genders, women were we're slowly moving towards, uh, I wouldn't certainly say equality, because I think even in this day and age, sadly, um, we don't have the equality we should have, but women were moving in the right direction here, and were doing a lot of things that they hadn't otherwise done. Uh, this was a blacklist script a few years prior to this, so and I could see to a degree why. Julia Hart, the writer, was in attendance for the screening, and I, I think she was a, an elementary or high school teacher leading up to this, and I think she's crafted... A relatively solid script. Um, I think it's a little bit on the nose at times, but again, uh, kudos to her. I mean, a female screenwriter working um, with these three leads, uh, these these female leads in the film. Um, the film opens with a quote that says, "War is cruelty," which which I quite like. Um, and early on in the film, and, and I guess through most of the film, I think Barbara does a good job in being patient and letting things unfold. Doesn't go for a lot of stings or a lot of cheap uh, tricks, as it were. Um, he, he's patient to kind of let things unfold a bit, and it almost feels early on like, uh, and I don't know if it was a subconscious thing because of the female involvement, but like a Kelly Reichardt film, like Meek's Pat, or Meek's Cutoff, um, something like that, very still, very quiet. Uh, almost uh, like a Days of Heaven, and not quite as maybe as um, ponderous, but uh, the way it opens up, and you know, you get some establishing shots of of the countryside. And I have to say, I only knew this afterwards in the Q and A with the producer that was there. Uh, it was shot in Romania, and it looks beautiful. Um, you never would have guessed that it wasn't shot in America, but they really got a lot of value for their money. They built these houses. Um, or the the the, uh, the small town and the the house that the film takes place in in Romania, and it was still substantially cheaper than them working in America, which is sad. I think America's priced itself out of a lot of productions um, and a lot of jobs as a result, which is too bad. I think it's testament to the bloat that we see in Hollywood, and you know, there's a lot of waste and bloat. And I wish they could strip things down. I mean, we're getting to the point where you know, twenty million dollars is a small film, thirty million dollars is a small film, and that's insane. Um, but I digress. So the film very quickly establishes that it is going to be a nasty film in spots and no one's going to be free from cruelty or violence because the film opens up with two women very quickly getting shot and a really spectacular visual of this wagon, uh, this horse-drawn wagon set on fire with a woman coming out, stumbling out of the wagon lit on fire. Um you know, with barking dogs and what have you, and, and this really great uh, spare kind of violin that accompanies it. And it's well shot, too. So right away I thought, wow, the, the audience kind of gasped at what they were seeing. It wasn't going to be this tender kind of um, coming of age uh, for any of these women, certainly. So the film kind of, you know, it, it shows us uh, Marling clearly is, is the moral compass of the house with her brother and father away. I guess the mother must have died. You know, where it's alluding to a little. It allude. No, it doesn't allude to that. It outright tells us that. Forgive me. Um, but we see that the younger sister, Haley Steinfeld, is not as likable as Marling. She's a little bit more repugnant 
uh, in terms of her treatment of their um, the slave that works in the home, uh, played by Muna Utaru, who is also you know pretty decent in the film. She's given a little bit of a less of, less of a fleshed out turn than than Marling, but you know uh, Marling is the star after all. Um, there's some really spe- spectacular shots in this film, which I've talked about uh, earlier. For example, there's a shot when at night the three women hear something clattering around outside, and they descend down a staircase in their nightgowns with lanterns. And it's definitely the shot of the film. And even my mom had said, well, what do you think, Mom? Did you like it? And, and she had mentioned that moment as being kind of a high point visually for her. Um, and it really is spectacular. It almost feels like um, um, Nick Rowe. It just, what's it called? Uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Something kind of very poetic and lyrical and mysterious and a little bit unsettling and a really, really fantastic shot. And I think they do, they employ the, the quiet and the solitude of these women quite well in the film. Um, they make good use of shadows. So from a technical standpoint, I think the film works pretty well early going. We get to see Brit, uh, Brit split some wood like Charlie Bronson. Um, he is the gold standard for, for chopping wood in film and Brit holds her own. I got to say, um, I think that uh, it does a pretty good job of, of conveying how desperate these times were and how lean these times were. People were hungry, they were scared, there was an uncertain future ahead of them. And I think th- this the story of these women, it encapsulates that feeling and that mood really well. Um, they make great use of natural light in the film, which again, I think is testament to some of the filmmakers I, I mentioned. Or not testament, but testament to the the uh, the DOP uh, and his crew, um, you know, being skilled at what they do. Um, I have to wonder if, and I guess, whenever you see a film that deals with war, um, you can't help but uh, think of it as a parable of sorts. Um, yeah, you know, especially in these times of, of of the war that's going on in the world, if if you could almost transplant this as being the Middle East and and um, the you know the uh, American soldiers rapidly approaching, as it were, you know. But I, maybe I'm overthinking that. Um, as the the man, as a man who watches a lot of exploitation films, this does feature a topless Brit Marling shooting a shotgun, which. Uh, is something out of they call her one eye to be sure, but uh, I never thought I'd you know I'd really see that. But anyway, um, it does on a small scale. It really personalizes the horrors and cruelty of war. Sometimes we're we're so I don't want to say numb to, but when we've seen you know the storming of the beach at Normandy in film, and we've seen these big set pieces, sometimes I think we forget how horrific even one death is, and I think this shows a really really uh, examines that on a very intimate level, the cruelty and horrors of war. Um, so kudos to the film for that. Now, there are a few clumsy things about the film. There is a character that we see in the film, we're not really sure of their intent, what their place is and everything. I mean, I think it's relatively obvious, but they're trying to kind of... Um, keep that a bit hidden in terms of motivation. Uh, I don't want to spoil it, certainly, but I think that when there's a reveal and then something happens 
it, I kind of groaned a little bit uh, because of the the ties that this mysterious character had to someone else. I thought it was again very on the nose, and I thought the character was fine in the limited screen time they had. I know I'm being cryptic here, but I wouldn't want to spoil the moment for anyone. But I just felt like it was a bit too on the nose and needless. They 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 could have gotten from A to B without that. It felt a bit extraneous and made it feel more on the nose. But um, yeah, uh, again, location, location, location. The film has a lot of atmosphere because of the location and because of um, the set design and, and the, the carpenters and everyone that worked on the film. Uh, they did a wonderful job recreating the American uh, South of the time. There's a really great shot near the end of the film where the sky's on fire and the camera pulls back and you can kind of see the, the soldiers approaching. And I have to say, I found the end... I was a bit befuddled by the the very end of the film. Um, you know, it, it didn't make a. I wouldn't say it, made, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but I felt like they could have ended it with this this kind of aerial shot of the soldiers approaching and and the land and things were clearly changing. Uh, the world, as these people knew, it was changing because the world was a much smaller place then. You know, you'd stay in your town. It wasn't as, as you know, globally accessible as it is now. So, um, I thought the end with, you know, there's some dress up. I, I don't want to say more than that, uh, but I, I felt like that was a bit silly and I don't know. It didn't quite work for me if, if it was trying to convey desperation or commenting on uh, gender roles or assumptions based on gender. I didn't think it quite worked for me, but nonetheless, uh, it doesn't really mar the film. Uh, I'll jump into it here, make or break. Uh, my The scene that really made the film for me was the one I had mentioned with the stars of the film, the three women descending the staircase in their nightgowns with these lanterns in hand, with it kind of illuminating the staircase and their shadows kind of dancing on the walls. Really wonderful shot. The lighting was spare. It was very, very effective, though, and, and it, the film really has a wonderful atmosphere. And because of that, I'm going to give the MVP, the most valuable thing in this film, is is the production itself. You know, the actresses and the actors, Worthington actually puts in a pretty nasty little performance, i got to say. Like, I think they go for a few things that... Um, with his character and Marlene's character that, again, I don't think they really need. Feels a bit on the nose and make cute um, for my tastes. It's not overly so, but I feel like it was a bit of a misstep. Um, but uh, I think the production itself, the house, you know, where so much of the action takes place, um, the, the people that work behind the camera and what they put in front of the camera really worked well for me. Uh, score for the film is a, um, I'm going to say a, uh, a 6.75 out of 10. Um, it's a solid film. Uh, again, Marley is making interesting choices. Um, everyone in the cast is fine in the film. They're all you know, pretty solid all in all. Um, so I, I think I'd be curious when more people see this. I know Kinney, our good friend Jeremy, is a big fan of Marley, and I think he was very keen to see this film. So I'll be curious when when it comes out if people have some of the same problems I did or if it works for people more than it worked for me. So I guess we'll see. And uh, with that, I will say adios. Judy, Judy, Judy. Let's have a little more in. All right, hold that pose. Great, great. A little to the left. A little more, a little more. Good, good. Keep it going. Now to the right. That's it, that's it.
some bread and cheese and fine white wine. Designer shit about a matter of time. Could this be the real thing? Or is this just another fling? Seen by millions nationally. Lumo Vogue, Plager, G quarterly. Because he's down on his etiquette. Shari Vari's really it. Shari Vari. Shari Vari. Shari Vari. Shari Vari. Smoking on his cigarette. Listening to his carcasset. Cruising with his hot playmates. In his portion 9 to 8 Heading for the highest heights For the climax of the night The people there they just won't quit Because the music's really it Sherry, Vary Sherry, Vary
This is the Midnight Ride with Large William. Hey everyone, I'm back uh, on this episode of The Ride. I'm going to be talking about a film that a lot of people in our circles were highly anticipating. It kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere and then all of a sudden it was playing, I think, Venice and Cannes and TIFF. Uh, and that is uh, Abel Ferrara's film Pasolini, about the last day of of much loved, much hated, much admired, much respected, um, uh, much uh, talked about filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini. Um, full disclosure: I, I this, I guess, really is kind of inconsequential, but I have to share this. Uh, my <laughs> I hope I don't color my review too much uh, when I watch this film, only because um, I had the distinct pleasure of being able to meet Abel uh, before the screening. I was behind him on the escalator as he was running late for the screening, and then I had the pleasure of you know getting a picture with him and chit-chatting with him uh, after the film. And I'd always heard kind of horror stories about him, that he was a bit gruff and Oscar the Grouch uh, by way of... Uh, New York Italian filmmaker, um, but I have to say that uh, he's a really, really sweet man and was very humbled by the experience. And I just think he doesn't have time for a lot of pretense and nonsense, but um, very, very gracious, I will say. So this film kind of came on my radar, I guess, a few months ago, and uh, the, I think a lot of us had seen the the stills that were floating around of, uh, uh, of Willem Dafoe as... Uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini, um, and uh, it was pretty striking that he he looked a fair bit like him. So I thought, you know, wow, uh, he's really kind of nailed this here. Um, I didn't know how much um, Ferrara adored or adores Pasolini. Um, I guess you could kind of connect the dots in terms of the kind of filmmaker Pasolini was and uh, what Ferrara's done through his whole career. Um, but Pasolini's, I mean, certainly more than a filmmaker. I have to say as much as I love him as a filmmaker, I have a passing knowledge of some of his other involvements and interests and beliefs and what have you, but um, he really is one of the more interesting filmmakers and, and people in entertainment, uh, you know, in, uh, potentially of all time. I mean, just fascinating, fascinating poet, uh, you know, a lot of political, very, very political. I mean, he was a, he was a gay... Uh, communist uh, anti-church uh, filmmaker slash poet uh, slash journalist in a very tumultuous time in Italy um, so you know that right there is kind of uh, very juicy as far as being able to do a film about him now the film thankfully takes a look at the last, not thankfully but I think thankfully in terms of the runtime and and scope it takes a look at the very last day in the life of uh, Pasolini versus an arc or his whole career. Biopics are always a very slippery slope because they can come across as too reverent or, or they come across as um, scathing or clueless or folk, too myopic. It's a, it's a slippery slope to walk, uh, to get them right. Um, and I think that uh, Ferrara does a really admirable job uh, with this film. I, I'll be forthright. I don't think it's a, a masterpiece. Um, it may not make my top 30 of the year, quite frankly, but I really admire that at this point in Ferrara's career, the passion 
and the care and the detail he put into this film. Um, it's really, really fantastic. I mean, this guy's been making film for 40 years, 40 plus years. Um, and some of his best work has come uh, lately. I know uh, Welcome to New York has received a lot of acclaim. Um, Chelsea on the Rocks, a documentary, you know, got a lot of acclaim. And through, you know, the 90s and 2000s, he had some interesting films, some very good films. I think more into the 2000s, he kind of, he hit the rocks, as it were. I don't mean that in a literal sense either, uh, uh, because of the much-discussed uh, uh, interest and indulgences that he would, um, you know, he would uh, engage in from time to time. Um, but I think at this point, to make a film that, that speaks to him, that moves him, that he puts so much care into, is really admirable. The film toggles between the last day of his life, uh, that is, of course, Pasolini, and I believe uh, a few books that, that he was working on at the time of his death. Now, his death is sort of like the, the JFK assassination uh, in film circles in that, you know, some people say, was it, was it uh, you know, fascists that killed him? Was it Americans that killed him? Was it uh, the gay hustler that killed him? Was it just some street thugs? There's a lot of different uh, theories as to how he died. He he met a rather grim demise, um, just on either on the heels of or uh, immediately after Solo got released. Um, this, of course, looks at what Ferrara believes to be the truth as to what happened, or at least his interpretation of the truth. Um, a lot of people will probably think when they look at this film, it's, it's primarily, in fact, I think it's all Italian, uh, all Italian actors with the exception of, um, uh, with the exception of, um, Willem Dafoe and, uh, Maria de Medeiros who plays, uh, Laura Betti, who a lot of people, I knew, I knew her to see her. I couldn't quite place her. She looks sort of like an Italian Carol Kane in this. Um, she was unbelievably grating in this film to me. I don't know if that's commentary on, the person that she's playing, or if it's her. I mean, she did annoy me in Pulp Fiction. She was Bruce Willis's uh, Bruce Willis's girl, but um, she uh, she's just she's fine, I guess. But the kind of person she's playing again, I don't know if it's commentary so much on on Laura, who uh, was a, you know very dear friends with uh, with uh, Paolo or or what. But she kind of graded on me. But the rest of the cast speaks Italian. For the most most of this film, but Defoe doesn't, and someone had asked him about that. That is Ferrara, and he had indicated, you know, look, I'm Italian American, uh, but I'm American. My Italian isn't great. If I'm directing someone, I need to be able to communicate with them, and I felt comfortable having worked with Willem Defoe uh, before. He speaks Italian. His wife's Italian. He speaks Italian at home, um, but I felt like to know that he was giving the kind of performance I wanted him to give. I needed him to speak in English, uh, so. You know, for better or worse, we're stuck with that. And I think Defoe does a really good job. You know, Defoe's a, a great actor, one of the better actors of our time that doesn't always get the recognition, I think, that he's uh, deserving of. Um, but he's, you know, always picking interesting films. Uh, and he's fine in this. I have to wonder if, uh, just more for like Marvel what-if uh, curiosity, someone like Viggo Mortensen, I think, also has a very angular face and could have potentially played... Pasolini. In fact, Vigo may even be fluent in Italian. I know he's done films in, in Spanish. 
and I think other languages as well, that he's, he's been fine in. Well, because there's a few moments when, when um, Defoe speaks Italian, and his Italian is fine, but it's very obvious that he's conscious of what he's saying. It's, it's clearly not his first language. But um, the film weaves between uh, these novels and these, these really fantastic uh, arcs in the, in the books that, or book, maybe it's books, I thought it was two, two books he was writing, uh, versus one, but uh, it sort of toggles between that and then the last day that um, Willem Dafoe has. Uh, as for the production itself, it, it's a really good-looking film, really good-looking. You know, Furrow doesn't get all kinds of dough in this day and age. I mean, I mean, if Scorsese has to fight for money, then people like Ferrara, unfortunately, have to. And uh, I think he's done well. The film looks great. He captures 70s Italy quite well. Um, through a lot of exterior shots in and around towns, uh, interiors and in, in the apartment he shared with his um, his mother and sister, um, uh, you know, a lot of different uh, interviews uh, that happen in the film. Now, I think that uh, uh, Ferrara does, you know, he does a few nods to uh, Pasolini uh, with some of his casting. He gets Ninetto Davoli who worked in a lot of um, Pasolini's work. Uh, he gets him uh, in the film. And he puts in a really good performance, and it's peculiar because uh, he plays uh, Epifanio, who is part of the, the book that um, uh, Pasolini was writing. And uh, it's curious because Epifanio, or Ninetto Davoli, looks like Ferrara. Um, so it's, it was kind of curious, certainly. Um Maybe my thought, and I'm looking at this here now, I'm kind of rambling, but um, uh, Giada Cologrande plays uh, Graziella uh, uh, Chiracossi, uh, and I thought she was supposed to be um, Pasolini's sister, but maybe she was just a friend. You know, I don't know enough about his... Um, his story, other than very broad strokes, to, to pick up some of the nuance. I think if you were a Pasolini, not to say the film um, doesn't appeal to people. I mean, I think even if you have no knowledge of Pasolini, you would probably still enjoy the film to a degree, but it's certainly enhanced when you were able to pick up on people that were involved in Pasolini's life. You know what he worked on, you know the circles he was in. I think it's really enhanced when you get that opportunity. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to say about the film. I'm actually running short on time here. I don't want to give it a short shift, but I think it's worth everyone's time. I mean, if you listen to our show, you're listening to this show, then you listen to our show, and you know the kind of films we dig. Um, and I think it's a solid film, and like I said, a really admirable effort from a filmmaker who's been pumping out films for 40 years, um, you know, who's got to be in you know late 60s, maybe. Or I think he's 72, 73 now, and uh, there's days, you know, for me at, at 34 that I think, man, I don't even want to get out of bed. But he's still going, and he still loves it. And the Q&A was amazing. It was bizarre. It was the most bizarre q and I've ever been to. There was people talking about the Communist Party of America and some bizarre European man in Daisy Dukes interrupting the Q&A at the beginning to heap praise on Ferreira. Um, just all sorts of really... Abel was answer, trying to answer his phone. His girlfriend didn't believe he was in Toronto for a screening of the film. So it was very suitably nutty. Um, to say the least, and like I said, uh, I enjoyed it though. I didn't have, I didn't actually get to take any notes um, as I was. Uh, I left my notebook at home, but um, 
on the whole, I think the, the film's solid, 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 and I think uh, I think it'll do everyone uh, well to at least see it. It's maybe want to catch up with some of the other stuff I've not seen by Pasolini. I think he's arguably, you know, he's, he's if nothing else, he's within a handful of the most important filmmakers to come out of Italy. For some, maybe the most important. Um, of you know, of course, Fellini's my man, but um, I really admire Pasolini um, for what he did for the film, and and also. Um, for speaking his mind in a time when it, it wasn't uh, an easy thing to do, you know, a very fascinating person. So, um, yeah, those uh, that's everything. And with that, I will say, ciao, bella. All right, all right, all right. You've been listening to the Midnight Ride, baby, with Lodge William, bringing you the glitz and the glamour with the Velvet Hammer. Films from around the world for all the boys and girls. Until next time, adios.